0: Dr. Peter Enns is a Bible professor at Eastern University in Pennsylvania. He holds a bachelor's in psychology, a bachelor's in behavioral science, master's of divinity, and a Ph.D. from Harvard University in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. Uh, He's the author of several books, including um, The Evolution of Adam, uh, Incarnation Inspiration. He's an avid Yankees fan, which probably might do some damage already there. Uh, Actually, I think we have somebody else here who's going to be right with you on that. And we've asked him to come and speak on his two most recent books. And so please welcome uh, Dr. Peter Renz for part two for The Sin of Certainty.
1: Thank you, Kevin. Um, and uh, just, you know, t- again, to reiterate something that Kevin just said, um, you know, having, having a church culture where you can talk about things and not feel judged doesn't happen every day. Right. So, I mean, be thankful for where you are. And I bet you some of you sought this place out, you know, so you could do that sort of thing. Um, what uh, we're going to talk about is this: How many people here have read this book? Okay, better question. how many have bought it? <laughs> That's all I care about. okay um, but there there are just there are a couple of themes here that i, I that mean a lot to me that I thought we would just sort of go through and, and again get your comments and reactions afterwards um, and I guess you know the first thing maybe is just why did what 's the book about, and why did I write it and Let me answer the first, second question first I, I wrote the book really for two reasons because I was processing a decade or so of just things that were happening in my life, and how to sort of make sense of things, and, you know, where's God when you need him, that kind of thing, and, and, and that was an important thing for me personally, but also, I don't know, I just, people just email me stuff, and, or text me, or, you know, leave comments on my Facebook thing, or, or on my blog, and they usually start off with things like, I don't have anybody to talk to, you know, I, I can't, talk about this or that with other people, and you seem reckless enough. Maybe I can give my (laughs) comments. You know, so I I get things like that occasionally, and I figure, well, you know, I'm seeing this a lot out there, and it's something that means a lot to me personally. I'd like to try to maybe think about this. Um, I'm going to guess that a number of people here have been through periods of maybe not being sure anymore exactly what they believe. Or am I the only person in this room who's gone through that, right? So, um, it, which is hard because, you know, a, a lot of us, and I can't, I mean, you guys are such a diverse group. I can't possibly put you all into one sort of label. I'm not even going to try. But I know many of us here probably have grown up or been a part of expressions of Christianity where having strong faith means never having any doubts about anything. And when you start having doubts, that means you're having weak faith. <coughs> and um, I, I don't think that's a good way to think about it. Um, the analogy that's sometimes used, and maybe you've heard this too, is that you know when you doubt for whatever reason, when you're struggling with your faith, it's like the wall is crumbling, right? And what they want you to do is they want you to put the bricks back in their place and put the mortar in so that wall is back the way that it was before and doesn't crumble down before. I like a different metaphor, not not a wall, but a journey or a pilgrimage where our life of faith, we're always on the move. It's not about building a wall and keeping us safe so we never have any thoughts that enter our minds that aren't good ones, but we're on a journey that Sometimes journeys are wonderful and they're sunny and they're beautiful and it's early morning in the summer and it's great and then other times it turns very dark and bleak and rainy and cold but the thing is you keep going, right? You don't stop. And I think that's a much more common experience, at least the people that I know, that's a much more common experience for them than I'm always certain about what I believe. Now, just the title of the book, The Sin of Certainty, I just want to make sure that we all sort of know what I'm saying. I am not saying that feeling certain about things is sinful. What I'm saying is this. All of us, if you've been a Christian for more than like 45 minutes, okay, all of us, sooner or later, we get to a point where what I was so certain about doesn't seem as certain anymore. I'm not sure what I believe right now. I'm struggling with this or that. All of us get to that point. When we get to that point, our tendency may be, I don't like this, I have to get back to the way that I was. See, I think that's the sin of certainty. Because maybe, maybe, I don't speak for God, but maybe what God wants is to push us forward someplace, someplace different. In other words, maybe that period of not being sure, maybe that period of doubting is actually a God moment. Maybe God is actually closer to us at that moment than we thought, right? And, and to sort of honor that period of time and to sort of keep going, because maybe God's going to teach you something, right? Do, do we learn more when the chips are down or when things are going well? Chances are when the chips are down. So it, it, that's why when that happens to us, you know, maybe we're not leaving God behind like we sometimes think we are. Maybe we're leaving our little versions of God behind, And we need to grow into another way of thinking about God a bigger way. Maybe. That's that's sort of what I try to go uh, in in this book. All right. So I said that a lot of people contacted me. Actually, I I had a a survey that I did on my website. um, And it was this. Um, I asked my readers, what are your one or two biggest obstacles to staying Christian? Because at that point, I had gotten a feel for like, this is where a lot of people are. Um, what are those roadblocks you keep running into? What are those issues that won't go away and make you wonder why you keep on believing at all? Right. And again, I'm, I'm going to guess that there are people in this room. If there are more than three people, actually if there are more than one person, chances are somebody has gone through some a period like this. Just I don't know why I keep going. Right. Um, I got like... 300 responses, and what I did was I sort of collated them into categories. Very unscientific, but I collated them into categories. And I came up with basically five basic issues that at least my readers keep bringing up. And um, here's one of them, right, which we just talked about. This This is like one of the most common things that people are wondering about. The Bible portrays God as violent, reactive, vengeful, bloodthirsty, immoral, mean, and petty. Not all the time, but enough time to make you want to think about it, right? And, you know, in the world that is growing very small, you know, and, 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 and we see things that are happening in the name of God in different religions across the world, this is something that people want to deal with. Okay, we won't talk about that because we did that already. So, um, second, the Bible and science. Anybody here ever have issues with the Bible and science, right? They collide on too many things to think that the Bible is anything meaningful to say to us today. This is this is people. I'm not saying you should think that. I'm saying this is the results of the survey. This is what people were thinking. And it's it's not just things like, you know, evolution is usually one that people bring up pretty quickly. Oh, good, we came from monkeys. You know, how does, that, how does the Bible fit with that kind of thinking? But it, it's actually deeper than that. It's, it's things that I don't understand, so don't ask me any questions in the Q&A. All right? But neurobiology, how our brains work, which I'm only starting to sort of get a handle on, and it's, you know, um, it, it, you can explain religious faith neurobiologically, right? And, you know, if any of you have ever been really depressed, I mean clinically depressed, guess what helps you? Medicine and a really, really good therapist for a long time, right? See, people who have no energy for anything, chemicals help them feel better, right? And as a Christian, if people, I mean, I'm not a doctor or a therapist, but if people I know who are clearly deeply depressed, I'm gonna send them to a doctor, right? Is that wrong? I don't think so. I don't think so, right? So, you know, it's things like um, the advances in science. It's not just talking about the past. It's actually talking about the present. And what are we as human beings? What does it mean to be human? That's a question that science indirectly, I think, gets at. And that creates challenges for people, right? I don't think people who are depressed are possessed by the devil. Right? That's what people say. They're not, they're not demon-possessed. They're schizophrenic or they're bipolar or there's they're some other psychiatric, psychiatric issue. And we explain that differently today. We talk about family dysfunction. We don't talk about sin. That explains why people do the things that they do within a family system. right? It's things like that that people talk about. We have a different model for reality, in other words, in the modern world than people did in biblical times. And that's a a stressor for people. When I can't go to the Bible for answers, but I can go to a doctor for answers. Third... Stop me if you've heard this one. Um, God seems utterly absent from our lives and in the face of great suffering all around us and throughout the world. Right. Where is God when you need him? Right, Things are horrible. Things are terrible. I don't know why God doesn't answer my prayers. I don't know why God doesn't show up. Either for me personally or... You know, I, I don't know... Does God give you a parking space if you pray hard enough? But he doesn't do anything about ISIS. You know what I mean? It's it's that kind of a thing. You know, why doesn't God just make it all right? Why doesn't he stop the madness and the craziness? Why doesn't God show up? And, you know, I've been struggling in my faith for 30 years and praying for God to show himself to me and nothing. I feel nothing. I mean, these are the kinds of things. This is like, why go on? Why, why go on in this faith when I don't see any payoff, right? Does anybody here ever feel anything? Am I talking to myself here? Or just, I mean, right? Yeah, one person. Thank you. Just keep, Don't leave. Um, fourth, in our ever-shrinking world, it is very difficult to hold on to any notion that Christianity is the only path to God. Um, you know, it's, it's... For me, okay... I mean, this is a a small thing, but for me, I didn't grow up evangelical. I grew up sort of Christian. And then, you know, I I became a Christian. had, like, a conversion experience in high school. Then I went to a Christian college, but I didn't believe half the stuff they told me because I'm like that. That's how I grow. And, um, you know, then I went to seminary, and, you know, I learned a bunch of stuff, and I was very happy. Then I went to Harvard, and I was taught by a lot of Jews. I mean real Jews who like know their Bible and are actually very religious, right? And all of a sudden, you know, my world was very small, but now other parts of the world were invading my little private space and had to deal with people who were very different than I was, who didn't think at all like I do, but were good and decent people. See, it's easy to live in the world in isolation if we demonize everybody else. But if you get to know them, what happens? Hey, they're not so bad. By the way, the Israelites had the same experience. They went into captivity in Babylon against the enemies. And when they had a chance to come back, many of them stayed. They liked it there. And you could see in the Bible these echoes where they start rethinking questions about the other. Is the other person always evil? Maybe not maybe God has something for them too it 's a, a normal sort of process that people go through, um, but you know it, you know I remember thinking in, in in graduate school just always having this default position that i 'm basically right about God and everything, and so was my tribe, and people out there i t i wouldn 't want to be them, and then sort of thinking like it 's more complicated than that because i don 't expect my classmates who came from Israel to come to school here, I don't expect them to think like I do, right? So then I started thinking, what's God going to do with them? And the longer I thought of it, the more I answered to myself, it's none of my business, right? But you see, for some people, that shrinking world, what's so special about Christianity? Why do I stay with this? If I had been born in China and stayed there, if I had been born in Russia, if I had been born someplace else, I might not be who I am right now. So, who am I to say I'm right about ultimate reality and everybody else is wrong? Right? That's, that's, a, that's a real life stressor for people. That's a real life stressor. Um, the last one. <clears throat> Christians treat each other so badly that it calls into question the validity of Christianity and even God's existence. Now I don't know if if you've ever experienced that. Um, I have to say, I haven't really myself... I sort of came a little close, but not too much. But I know people who used to be Christian who aren't anymore because they got their heads handed to them again and again and again, particularly by church leaders and other people in power because they didn't line up exactly the same way and they were ostracized. And there's something powerful about the Christian faith and community. It has to work in community, which is why Paul never grows tired of his two favorite topics, love and humility, which are flip sides of the same coin. You have to have those or the gospel doesn't work. If those two things aren't there, you're showing the world that what you believe in is useless. And I, as I've thought about this over the years, I've seen people actually experience that. The people of God sucked to them. And they, they said, I have to wash my hands of this whole thing and just leave, right? And these are people with, with real stories of being hounded, slandered, harassed by other Christians because Jesus only cares about whether you're thinking all the right thoughts and not how you're acting, right? And it's really devastating to people to sort of be a part of that. I mean, and this is the one thing that we actually can control. We can't control the other four. We can't control the reality of science or the internet and all the other stuff. We can control number five. We can control how we act towards other people. And that's why I think that's, like, the most devastating one for many people. Yeah. Okay, so that's... Um, Those are the five top ones that sort of came up in the survey and um, I sort of began thinking about this a few years ago a little bit differently and just noticing things in the Bible that um, I had never bothered with before or just sort of skipped over. It's amazing how diverse the Bible is, certain things you're tuned into at different times in your life. That's why I I like the Bible, it's so diverse, it's not just this flat text. but I talk about the stuff in, in the Bible a lot. First of all, there are psalms in, in the book, rather, a lot. The psalms of lament, right? The, the, there are 150 psalms. Roughly half of them, something's going wrong. They're not all happy and smooth, okay? And um, a couple of examples that I happen to like is Psalm 88. And I talk about these in... Uh, anybody else like Psalm 88? It's, it's the only psalm that has nothing positive to say whatsoever, right? it just sort of like the this, this psalmist is going on and on about, Lord, I'm praying to you day and night. I got nothing. <laughs> I'm in anguish. There's no answer. Nothing's happening. My friends are against me. In fact, you've turned them against me. And, and the psalm ends, my companions are darkness. Uh, now, just in case you care, some of your Bible translations probably say my companions are in darkness. That's not, the Hebrew doesn't say that. It says my companion, my only friends are complete darkness. Those, those are the people I hang out with. I'm alone in the dark. And, and I love that psalm because um, that reflects where a lot of people are at times in their lives, right? There's a psalm for you, folks. <laughs> Just read them. It's in there, and it doesn't matter where you are. It really is a reflection on our own souls, our own experiences with God. And I, I like the honesty that that psalm has, Psalm 88. It's not trying to paper it over. It's just, here it is. See, the people who compiled the book of Psalms, sometime after the exile, they compiled the book of Psalms. There are more than 150 psalms written, folks. There has to be. They picked these. They wanted these in their book. Right? I, I just think that's an amazing thing. You know, these were deliberate choices, not mistakes. These are part of their sacred text, the ancient Israelites, because they reflect how people actually experience God sometimes. Um, The next one after that, Psalm 89 is, is, is a rather lengthy psalm. But this psalmist is even a little bit sarcastic with God. Because God doesn't come through the way God is supposed to come through, right? What what's the issue in this psalm? Basically it's this. He goes, Lord, you are so awesome. I can't believe how awesome you are. You're the creator, and you know what? you're faithful and you're trustworthy and nothing can ever crush your faithfulness and trustworthy. You're just the best thing ever. Oh, and you know what? And you gave us David as a king and you set him up as a king and you also said that you would never have a son of David not sitting on the throne. His kingship would be perpetual. There would never be a time when the, when the kingship of David and his line would come to an end. God, you're awesome. Right? Until you get to the second half of the psalm, it goes, oh, wait a minute, that's right, the exile. What happened in the exile? 586 B.C., the line of David comes to an end, right? That um, was my memory, fails. Zedekiah, the last king of the south, who's the last king in the line of David, he is blinded and taken away into captivity by the Babylonians, but not before his sons are killed right in front of his eyes. So, end of the line of David. And they go into exile for roughly 50 years. And you know what? People are asking questions. What's the deal? <laughs> you know, what happened to the promises of God? And they're not making that. I mean, that's 2 Samuel chapter 7 lays this out very beautifully. David, you're my guy, and not uh, someone from your. Issue, so, someone, one of your descendants will never see sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And then what happens? Someone sees sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And then they, think about this, they came back from exile, and that's great, they came back, but they didn't establish the monarchy. They couldn't. Why? Because the Persians are in charge. And then what happens after that? The Greeks are in charge. And what happens after that? The Romans are in charge. Hundreds of years go by. See, this is why Jews had a messianic hope around the time of Jesus and before. Who is going to come and deliver us from these outsiders who are living in our land to give us our land back and our people back and our heritage back? That's when Jesus started speaking. People said, maybe this is the guy to do it. And of course, what does Jesus do? He flips the idea of Messiah on its head And it's not about reestablishing the monarchy, but it's about something much, much bigger than that, right? But you see, but that's the hope of Israel, is to have their land back and their people back and their purpose back and everything like that, but they don't have it, So Psalm 89 basically takes God to task for that. And basically, I'm not exaggerating, read it yourself, you get to like the 30s, It's, it's about... I don't know, 40-something, 50 verses, uh, verses long. You get into like late 30s, early 40s, and basically the psalmist is calling God a liar. It's really hard to get around that. He's so mad, right? How long, O oh Lord, will you abandon us forever? Earlier in the psalm, he said, O oh Lord, your, st- your faithfulness lasts forever. Now he says, maybe it's your absence that lasts forever. He's actually, there's a little bit of sarcasm, there's a hint of sarcasm in that, which is why I like that psalm, because it validates my personality type. But anyway, um, okay, so a a couple psalms there. Um, Two more, Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, this is like my favorite book of the Bible, because, you know, he's just not having a good day. Um, You know, um, some of you who know something about the book of Ecclesiastes, Um, There's a refrain in the book, vanity of vanities. All is vanity, right? Which isn't the best word. It's misleading in English. In Old English, like the King James that made sense, but today we think of vanity of people looking in a mirror for too long. It means vain. Things don't really matter. That's really what it means. Uh, Some of your translations probably say meaningless. Everything is utterly meaningless. I think a much better way of putting it is absurd. Life is absurd. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. That's why, you know, when my kids didn't like something that I did, it didn't make sense to them. They'd say, Dad, this is stupid. This is just so stupid. They don't mean dumb. They just mean it doesn't make any sense. It's absurd. It's like it's an affront to reason. This is ridiculous, right? That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. Life is stupid. It's absurd. And God is to blame. It's the most in-your-face book of the entire Bible, really taking God to task, you know? And again, remember, the people who put the Bible together said, yeah, we're keeping this, right? Because it says something to people. It speaks to people, right? And, um, you know, he says, you know, I, uh, you, you think life has purpose. This guy's, he's really depressed, right? You think life has purpose. But I'm telling you, read chapter one. He says, you know, Life doesn't have any payoff. You know why? Because at the end, we all die. That's his issue. He's, he's saying we all die. And if everybody dies, who cares whether you believe in God or not? Now, you're all saying, yeah, we go to heaven afterwards. Okay, there is no such. The, the Old Testament doesn't talk that way. And he says, you know, in chapter 3 or 5, I forget where it is, he goes, who knows whether the soul of an animal goes down and the soul of man goes up. We we don't actually know what happens to us after we die, he says. So don't use that to calm me down. All I know is I live and I work and I try to do the best I can, and everything I do comes to naught because at the end of the day we die. Oh, and it's worse than that, he says. After you die you're going to be quickly forgotten by those who are left behind. Just like you forgot all those people who died before you came around. Right? This is not for the faint of heart. He's really like, he's turning the screws. He's trying to make you depressed. Right? And when you get to the end of the book, I mean, this is a faith crisis we're seeing right in front of us here. And it goes on for 12 chapters. And you get to the end of the book, and you have a different voice takes over. This is like an editor comes at you at the end, and he sort of tries to sort of bring it, tie it all together. And he says things like, the words of the wise, because this, this guy in Ecclesiastes, his name is Kohelet, the preacher or the teacher, he's sometimes called. He's a wise man. He's a sage. And the editor says, the words of the wise are like goads, like firmly implanted nails, What does that mean? He's like a shepherd who has a goad. What's a goad? A long stick. What do you do with a stick? You poke the sheep to make them go in a certain direction. And to make sure they get the message, you put a nail at the end of it and then you jab them. In other words, the observations of people like that, they hurt. Are you uncomfortable? Good. (laughs) You should be uncomfortable. So respect what he says, but don't linger there. And he doesn't, he doesn't get anybody off the hook. He doesn't get God off the hook. He doesn't get this writer off the hook. All he says is this. The end of the matter, all has been said. Let's not talk more about this. Fear God and keep the commandments anyway. I mean, think about this, right? It's, it's, this guy has a faith crisis. Nothing makes sense to him. God is to blame. And the book doesn't try to make it all happy at the end. This is listen, the guy, just you ever feel this way? You can't listen to him, that's fine. But here's what you do in the Old Testament. Fear God and keep the commands anyway. In other words, regardless of how you're feeling, keep moving forward anyway. And to put that in Christian language, I'd put it this way. No matter what you're going through, keep trusting Jesus and moving forward in Christ anyway. Right? That's, that's the Christian way of putting it. But what I love about this book is how just brutally honest it is. It's not an example of like, boy, this person has really bad faith, don't be like him. 12 chapters of like, don't do this, right? But it's, it's again, it's like the Lament Psalms, it's expressing something of what we all experience in one way or another sooner or later. This life of faith doesn't make sense. That's not just a modern problem. It's in the Bible. Uh, Quickly, one more. Job. God doesn't follow through on his own script. You know the story of Job, right? Everybody knows the story of Job. Job is doing just great. Until there's a meeting up in heaven between God and his council of advisors, one of whom is called the accuser, which isn't Satan, but he's the accuser, and he says, hey... God, actually, God says, says to this accuser, he goes, hey, have you seen Job? He's awesome. He's fantastic, right? Nobody's like my servant Job. And this accuser says, yeah, well, that's because you give him everything he wants. He's spoiled. He's rich. He's got a great family. His kids are all going to Ivy League schools. It's a fantastic thing. It's a wonderful job. Job has an easy life. I bet you Job worships you not because you're God. I bet you Job worships you because of all the stuff that he has. So try taking some of it away. And that happens in two stages, and Job is left with everybody's dead except for him, and he's suffering with boils from head to toe, and he's in complete and utter misery. And you remember he's got friends who come to visit him, right? And what do his friends say to him? Hey, you look horrible, (laughs) number one. They don't say anything for like seven days because they're courteous of the fact that this guy's suffering. They're actually good friends. But then they basically say, Job, what did you do to deserve that? And Job said, I didn't do anything. And they said, yes, you did. What did you do to deserve that? And Job said, I didn't do anything. And they said, yes, you did. And Job says, I don't think, no, if I did, God, show me what I did. I didn't do anything. Job's friends, yes, you did. Job, no, I didn't. 42 chapters of like back and forth, like that's pretty much what the book of Job is. But the stuff that's said is very interesting. But see, here's the point Job's friends, technically speaking, were right. Because what you read in places like Psalm 1 or last time, we looked at the book of Deuteronomy the last hour, right? We looked at those curses, right? The righteous are blessed. The wicked are cursed. If you're righteous, you'll be blessed. If you're wicked, you'll be cursed. Hey, Job, how's it going? Wow, you look pretty cursed to me. You must have done something to deserve it. That's a view of retribution. That's a retributional theology where God is retributional. He He pays you what you deserve. But Job knows he hasn't done anything wrong. And that dialogue goes on and on until the end. And what Job does, he basically, he sticks to his story. He holds his ground. He doesn't give in. In the very last chapter, God speaks again to Job and to Job's friends. And, and God says something I think that's absolutely amazing. At the end of the book, the beginning of chapter 42, he's, he speaks to Job's friends. And he says, you have not spoken of me truthfully like my servant Job has. Think about, just just think about that for a second. All Job's friends are doing is basically quoting the Bible back to Job. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. If you're, if you're going through suffering, you must have been punished. And God himself says in the book of Job, you have not spoken wisely as my servant Job has. Now, What's the point of this? Struggling with faith in the Bible, Job is struggling too with God and what God is up to. His friends aren't struggling. Of course, they're not suffering either. They're not struggling because they just read the book and it's right there. But the reality of what God does can't be contained there. It goes outside of it. See? I mean, Job is, the book of Job is a, is a picture of struggling with what is God what does God do, actually? <laughs> you know, and, and, and how do we count on God? How do we know what God's next move is going to be? And one of the messages of the book of Job is you don't. Welcome to the freedom and mystery of God. See, see these books here, these are just three examples. You know, for me, they are um, important reminders that the story the Bible tells about the life of faith is very honest about things they don't always work out the way you think they should. right? They don't always work according to a script. You don't know what God's going to do next. But that's why I like Ecclesiastes so much, because he sort of gives God and everybody an earful, And at the end, the answer is still, keep moving forward. I, know, I hear you, I'm not minimizing your pain. I'm not saying your suffering's a fantasy. Keep going. Um, okay, what the New Testament adds to all that. Let's talk about the New Testament in a little bit. Um, here is, this is, okay, the New Testament doesn't add much to this at all on one level. And I want to talk about why just very briefly. Um, the New Testament was written over a fairly short period of time. All right? Jesus has come, the Messiah has come. And we're going to clear out of here real fast. I mean, we can't go into all the detail, but when you read Paul, especially Paul and some other New Testament writers, Jesus has come. He's the Messiah of God. It won't be long until his kingdom is completely and firmly established. So basically, Jesus is coming back soon. That's why, hey, don't get married if you 're single, stay single if you 're married, stay married just don 't just don 't make any big changes because things are going to happen really fast. In other words, the New Testament covers a very narrow space of time, and its tone is very triumphal, right like the end has come, and Jesus is here and it 's fantastic. Hold on just a little bit it 'll be okay don 't lose faith don 't lose heart. The Old Testament is not a very narrow span of time. It's a huge, long-haul span of time. Centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years. Plenty of time for people to start asking themselves, where is God? <laughs> you know, we've been in exile for 50 years, or we've had the Persians ruling us for 200 years, and the Greeks ruling us for 200 years, and and we've had the Assyrians on our backs for centuries. Where is God? You see... The Old Testament has a very long span of time. Plenty of time for bad things to happen. All of us in this room, in that respect, we have much more in common with the Old Testament than the New. Because how long has the church been around? Oh, about 2,000 years. See, that's, that's just, I mean, that's a small commercial for the importance of the Old Testament, at least, you know, one angle for how it can give us a lot of spiritual encouragement and connect with us in different ways than maybe Paul can or the gospel writers do, or, or other New Testament writers do. Okay. But what the New Testament, it doesn't, it doesn't come at it from the same angle as the old, but what the New Testament does add is something else. And I'm just gonna put, I think, three passages up here that all have a similar theme: Matthew, Galatians, and then Colossians. Okay. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lo- lose their life for my sake will find it. I remember thinking for many, many years that first part of that passage meant, you know, take up your cross and follow me. It means following Jesus takes a lot of discipline because crosses are heavy, and you have to carry them around, and it's sort of a burden. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about, and I think the second half of this makes that pretty clear, right? Um, crosses are not things you carry crosses are things you die on right so i think what jesus is saying here is that if you if you try to find your life you're going to lose it if you lose your life you're going to find it in other words being my follower means you die not physically although that can happen certainly but you die to yourself right You don't live to yourself. You die to yourself. Paul puts it this way in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Think about that. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. That's like mystical language almost that Paul is using. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I've lost my life to gain it. And I think as importantly, I don't, I mean, these things can be discussed, debated, whatever. I don't think that these writers are talking about a one-time thing, like when you become a Christian. I think they're talking about a pattern of life, right? The Christian pattern of life is a daily pattern of dying to yourself, to your egos, not to yours, to mine, to our egos, right? To our wills, to our way of seeing the world, and submitting to God, and being in communion and harmony with the Spirit of God, which is an ongoing task for, that Christians have. Right? And Colossians 3, for you have died, again, not physically, Paul's writing to people who are alive, so they can't be dead, right? For you have died, spiritually, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. And again, if we tried to unpack what that means, I think we'd be here for a very, very long time and not have a good answer, right? But our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We're with Jesus, and our lives are hidden with him in God. All this is to say is this. The Christian life has a goal. And that goal is not necessarily being certain about everything you think. The Christian life is more about losing the desire to be omniscient and to know everything and to be certain and cocksure of yourself and be continually in a process of dying to yourself, of losing your life to find it. It's squashing our egos Right, that little control center in our brain that wants to iron everything out, and that's very much where I live. I love my control center of my brain. I love figuring the world out. I love being right about everything. Right, but that's 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 the part that has to die, that has to be sacrificed, so to speak, to live a life in communion with God. See, the Christian life, in other words, is much more than you got to know what you believe, so you got strong faith. The Christian life may be about dying. Dying and rising as a pattern of life every day. And that's some deep stuff. I don't understand it. But I'm trying to not figure it out. I'm trying to experience it and sense it when that's around me. right? And letting go of the need to be right about everything. Um, There's a great story. I love telling this story because when it first hit me. It's about Mother Teresa. <clears throat> um, I was in my own sort of period of, like, Oosh, I don't even know what's going on in my life anymore. I don't know what I believe. I don't know why I believe it. And I like to tell people, like, it, it was really bad until I met this woman on the internet. I mean Mother Teresa, not somebody else, right? But I, I was reading a story about her. Nobody's laughing. They think I'm kind of a prostitute or something. Um, but I was reading a, a, a pretty well-known story about Mother Teresa um, which when I heard I said, oh, I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> I think I understand something. She uh, was talking with uh, John Cavanaugh up there. John Cavanaugh just died about a year or so ago, I think, and he was a philosopher at St. Louis University, Roman Catholic philosopher. And he was going through his own crisis period of not having clarity in his life and not having the sense of certainty of all that stuff that people go through eventually. So he goes, I know, I'll go to Calcutta, and hang out with Mother Teresa and maybe I can get some answers there. So he shows up and I meet her and she says, well, what can I do for you? And he says, well, you can pray for me. And she said, what would you like me to pray for? And he says, pray that I have clarity. And she said, no, I will not do that. And he said, why? And she said, because clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of, right? And when I read that, I said, oh. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe there's something here, All right?" So he goes, well, wait a minute. You've got a ton of clarity. Seems, you, you, seems you're doing pretty well in the clarity department. And she laughed, she laughed. And she said, I have never had clarity. But what I've had is trust. So, her advice to him was, I will pray that you trust God. See, again, when I, when I first heard that, I just, you know, we all have our little moments. Mine happened to be sitting at a computer reading this on the internet. I don't even know where I, how I stumbled on it. Um, but I remember thinking, I said, this is one of the most profound things I've ever heard in my life. And I'm like 45. And no one had ever taught me this in church. No one had ever modeled this for me. That, you know, feeling certain about our faith, that can come and go. In Mother Teresa's case, she didn't have clarity in her faith. She she had basically an ongoing faith crisis from, if I remember correctly, like the late 1940s until just before she died in the 1990s, right? But she trusted God anyway and worked at it and talk to people about it. And you know, look what she did. Not too shabby. (laughs) You know, and I'm thinking like, I think the connection between her suffering and her faith crisis and then her acting out of trust anyway, that's a profound lesson, at least it is for me. Maybe there's something more important than being really, really certain about what you believe in. Maybe we have seasons where we have clarity. Maybe we have long seasons where we don't, and to be among people who understand that and who give you permission to be human—that's <laughs> a very, very big thing. Um, so anyway, I really like what you had to say here, and maybe, maybe you do too. Um, okay, last slide here. I'm gonna. What time is it again? Oh, it's only six. Okay, we a couple minutes. Just tying it all together, I'll just put these up here. Maybe we can talk about these, too. Um, clarity and certainty, like knowing what you believe, those things come and go. I have moments where I feel more conviction and clarity and certainty about some things, but other seasons where I, don't, I have very little, and it just comes and goes. And, and I do wish that you know my church influences in my younger years would have been very upfront about that instead of trying to hold everything together so you never have difficult questions. I just say, go read the Psalms. (laughs) Go read Ecclesiastes. Go read Job if you want people with profound theological questions of faith. Um, Struggling with our faith is a normal part of the journey of faith. Um, If you struggle with faith, you're not broken. There's not something wrong with you. You're not weird. You're not sub-Christian. You're not on a lower level. You're just in a different place on a journey that we all take, right? And it's, it's sometimes very hard to tolerate people like that when you're feeling pretty certain, right? So that comes back to love and humility, I think. Um, struggle with faith is driven by some sort of pain or suffering, which includes mental anguish. That's just my opinion. I could be very wrong about that. There could be many more things, but in my experience and talking with people and just in my own life, it's when things don't go well profoundly not well unsettlingly not well that's when you start thinking about this kind of stuff right you have to i just you know just the bible is one story of losers after another right like where where does the struggle with god begin chapter 2 and 3 of the bible right I mean, even, you know, the word Israel, the name of the nation, we read in Genesis that that name is interpreted as struggle with God. When does Israel get it right? I'll tell you exactly where Israel gets it right. In the book of 2 Samuel, starting around chapter 6 or 7 until chapter 10, about four or five chapters. What happens in chapter 11? David and Bathsheba. Everything goes down the toilet from there, okay? There are about five chapters where Israel, the glory days where they're getting it right, they've got a good king, and things are going pretty well. Israel's story is a story of struggle. Read the prophets. Nobody's getting it right, but they have glimpses of the future they have glimpses of a time when things will be settled and god will reign and the people will understand and the law will be written on their hearts and all that kind of stuff which christians believe that's the jesus era right that's that's what we believe it's it's that's why we have to get our acts together <laughs> you know and and sort of be a part of that moment that culmination of israel's story in christ all right anyway um, and last thing, letting go of the thought that certainty is our goal. I think that's an important part. It's letting go of the need to be certain. There's nothing wrong, as I said before, with feeling certain or clear. I actually want to hang around people like that as long as they're sort of humble and understanding about it. Right? But it's letting go of the need to be certain. right? If you're feeling uncertain and you have to get back to that old certainty somehow, you're going backwards and not forwards. That's the hard part. Letting go of that need to feel certain is if you can't really have faith unless you're feeling really certain about things. Letting go of that, I think, is an important part. Um, so that's not the goal. Dying to self and trusting God regardless of how certain we may feel, I think that's the goal of the Christian life It's learning to trust God regardless of where our knowing happens to be because that comes and goes. Right? All right, so we have some time. Like... Yeah, sure. Questions? Yeah. I bet you have forty written down on your. I do. There, That's Kevin. part okay. of my problem.
0: Do you mind having a seat again? I'd love to have okay, a so seat. Okay, I, so I, if yeah. you don't mind. Um, yeah. Okay, so thank you. Sure. Yeah. Let's thank Peter for sharing. Yeah. Uh, and then, as we said before, we'll take questions from everybody. My first question is: I, I think I would love. I have two questions for you. The first one is: I think I've heard a little bit of like kind of how you came to the thesis of the sin of certainty, but, um, and I think you alluded to it, but what what do you really hope actually happens as a result of coming to this awareness? I think you kind of summed it up by trusting God regardless, but what does that, like, I guess mean? Because faith, I guess, is in some ways a construct, a way of behaving, a way of life. So how would you flesh out, okay, so I have this problem, I have this lament, I have this crisis, I have all of this, and now I'm kind of letting go of certainty, but what are you essentially putting in, in I, I think place what, in yeah, the kind of faith that we're living?
1: Where I think maybe the payoff and the, maybe the goal of that is, I mean, this, this, this would have made no sense to me like 20 years ago. I would, have been, I would have walked out just out of sheer boredom, right? But now it actually means a lot to me. I think to have both inner peace peace Mm. with others. So you're not always in conflict, Mm. right? So you're peace with yourself and you're peace with others. And I Mm. think, you know, if you're in a place of, see, when you're trusting God, I think you're in a vulnerable position. You're not in a power position. You're actually in a very vulnerable position, and that's a good position to be in. Um, I, I think I use this analogy in the book about a trust fall. You know, when you're doing a trust fall, you're very susceptible, you're very vulnerable. There's a reason why they don't call it a belief fall. Believing is things we do in our heads, but trusting is something that is visceral and it just has to do it. And I think, you know, when we trust God, we're vulnerable. And I think that leads towards just a sense of letting go of control and being at peace with yourself inside. And I I know, again, I, I speak out of experience, but also talking with people, I think inner turmoil is a lot that is happening when people are very certain about what they believe and they fight about it and they're angry about it. They're not at peace with themselves. And I don't think that's what God is all about. I don't think that's what the Christian faith is all about. It's not about who has the better argument, and who, who gets, who's smarter and gets to fight. Those people are great. I'm one of them. right? I like thinking and writing and debating and stuff like that, but that's not the center of it. Right? So
0: I can't, I can't help but think, though, that there... I mean, you've run into plenty of people... Where the certainty is actually peaceful to them. And to move into a space of uncertainty is actually more tumultuous. Right. More toiling. More like, wait a second, if I don't believe that, if I don't believe that, or if, then I, I don't See, know I, what think, to I lose. think
1: letting go of the need to be certain ultimately brings you deeper peace. They do have peace, but the thing is that what happens when life happens to them? Right. right? That, and then then what do they do with that model of like, Peace and certainty have to be two sides of the same coin.
0: Okay, By the way,
1: your kid's running around crazy over here. here. Is anybody to, watching
0: her? Welcome to Spark. Bye, <laughs> Phoebe. Welcome CB. to Spark, right? So, yeah, I mean, this is Spark.
1: Right when you get work. I don't know where you're going over there. She's, but, uh,
0: she's run up during sermons before and interrupted the whole thing, so it's, it's beautiful. That's, okay, that's, my, my second question, which I, yeah. I hope is a quick one, because I want to make sure the audience has an opportunity to ask questions. C.S. Lewis is known for the, the statement, we should not only doubt our beliefs, but we should doubt our doubts. Yeah. What's your? I would love to hear your reflections on his.
1: Yeah, uh, I think um, I don't know what he means, but I know what I think of when I hear that statement. Is that? I mean, I've people have asked me, "Why aren't you an atheist?" And my answer basically is. I don't trust myself enough to come to that conclusion. <laughs> you know, I just like I don't trust my brain enough to say, "Well, there's no God." Yeah, you know, I just, I just, I can't get there. So, in a sense, I'm sort of doubting my doubt, mm. right? Because, see, well, here's what can happen. Another angle on this, and I hear this a lot, and I and I try to get it in people's face because I think this needs to happen. But you, people who are very clear, can look down on people who have doubt that happens but the opposite happens too doubts like cool hey man i'm doubting i don't believe anything oh you believe, you have clarity you idiot you know and, and that kind of thing too. i think people have to be more humble about that too yeah. you know and i i've seen that a lot i've seen it sort of it's like cool you know to like hey we're proud of the fact that we just don't care about believing anything you know yeah. it just, that doesn't work you have to doubt that who's got a question yeah.
0: Dylan. when uh, Hebrews, when it says like,
1: faith is being sure but we hope for uncertain right like, we Yeah. How does that fit in? That, yeah. That is a great question, and and the proper answer to that, Boom. and the proper answer to that will will make me miss my flight at eight forty tonight. <laughs> it's a very good question. Um, yeah, the Book of Hebrews disagrees with me. Uh, <laughs> shortly put, uh, yeah. See, I think. Um,
0: well, the, 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 the verse the, is yeah. faith is being certain of what you do not see, right? I mean, right. It, so that's yeah. Dylan's question. Right, yeah. How do, how do you, what do you say to that? The, uh,
1: oh, I, see, I want to do justice to your question, but let me, let me poke at a couple things that might make you think a little bit. Um, the book of Hebrews is a rhetoric of warning, which is appropriate in a particular moment of context. I mean, we have to look at the whole... See, people have talked about how the book of Hebrews doesn't go along with Paul very well. I mean, there, there's, there's theological diversity in the book of Hebrews vis a vis other parts of the New Testament. And so, when you're in a context of, like, say, persecution, where the followers of Jesus are saying, it's not angels, it's not the law, don't cave into old ways, don't cave into Greco Roman ways, stay the course. Look at all these models of faith of the Old Testament. That's part of the rhetoric of warning to keep people on the straight and narrow in a particular moment of crisis. See, James says something like, you know, don't waver in unbelief, right? Don't, don't, don't waver. And I'd say, okay, James, how do you handle some of these lament songs? Are they wrong? Or is James, again, talking in a context of persecution, where this is not the time to do that. Now is the time to actually stay the course because the time is short. Don't give in. So I'd look at it. In other words, another way of putting that, an answer to that very good question is I want to look at the context of the book of Hebrews and what the book of Hebrews is trying to accomplish and look at verses in the context of that, and then maybe put the book of Hebrews in conversation with Ecclesiastes or Lament Psalms.
0: Could could it also be true? I mean, you talked about the word faith uh, both in the Greek and the Hebrew, meaning trust. Yeah. It's not like an, uh, the word "belief," which is an assent to a proposition, right? But it's actually trust. So, could the Hebrews passage also have that?
1: The question I had in my mind is like, what is the word that's used for certain there? And right. that 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 could that could play a role. Um, what you don't find, I, I'm adamant about this. What you don't find in the New Testament is you now have intellectual certainty, never to have any doubts intellectually. Right. It's more don't waver when the ax is about to come down onto your head.
0: Right.
1: That, and that's a different kind of right. certainty. That is, I mean, what, that is, again, I don't want to play with words here, but to me that's more like retain that conviction that you have, right? Yeah. And not always like, if I have absolute clarity about everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. Be- beautiful. Someone yeah. else?
1: It's a good question. Yeah,
0: yeah well done.
1: None of you can ask a better question. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> this is where yeah. yeah yeah I mean I, and again i I, I want to be careful how I use some of these words because it might create more confusion than I intend, but I like people who have being around Christians who have a sense of conviction, but they're also they hold it gently and they're very humble about it because that gives me sort of a space within which I can be who I am, but I'm still around people i mean I, and I do think. I was saying this, we had some discussions in between, uh, like before the dinner, about how for me, and others have said this too, being in a more liturgical context, for me is important because those words and, being, and saying words that people have been saying for a long time, that people across the world are saying at this moment, it gives me a sense of like, I have help believing and people and, and, and the community helps you believe when it's difficult, and I like being around that. You know, it doesn't solve all the problems of life, but it's what the community is meant for, and that's why it's. You know, it, this is a community-oriented faith, right? So that's. I mean, I like that. I I, um, I don't like being around people who don't have a shred of doubt about anything, and they tell you if you do, there's something deeply wrong with you. I don't like being around people like that. And they don't like being around me, so it's mutual.
0: Just, you know, so. so I asked you a question yeah. earlier that I would love for you to answer them. Uh, we talked about, I mean, in this context, there are words like Christian, evangelical. Um, my question is, how would you, after going through all of this, how would you describe yourself? What terms would you use and what, what meaning, like what kind of category, if there is one? Yeah. How would you describe yourself if somebody asked you, so what do you believe? yeah
1: <laughs> that 's sort of slippery because i mean i I put it differently in different audiences, but um, one way that you know people have asked me so are you still an evangelical and I hate that question i just because i don 't want to deal with those categories so i 've come up with an answer my answer is i 'm a post evangelical evangelical <laughs> meaning you know i i 'm not defined by the institutions or the structures of evangelical theology, although I appreciate some of it, but more importantly, that's what I have, that's what's generated me, and that's what I've come out of. So I don't look back with disdain. I look on sort of the margins, sometimes on one side of the line, sometimes on the other side of the line, but that's the trajectory I've come out of, and I want to respect it and honor it and, and I have you know a lot of students at Eastern University an evangelical college which is still very progressive in its evangelicalism but it's still an evangelical college and young young students they learn things not just for me but from the university and they say to themselves I hate my church they lied to me and I say oh, buh, 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 buh. don't ever don't say that don't 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 look down on them but honor the fact that that's where you were, that's what, you, that's what formed you, and your journey is going now in a different direction, well, honor that, too, but don't look back with disdain. And I try to capture that a little bit when I say I'm a post-evangelical. So post-evangelical, capital E, I'm a post-evangelical, lowercase e, evangelical, if that makes any sense. I just like to confuse people. <laughs> like Jesus. Did. Congratulations. To to you, so.
0: <laughs> Somebody else. Does anybody else have a question?
1: I think they're pretty certain about what they believe.
0: They they're, they're pretty certain you're a heretic, right?
1: <laughs> or oh, they've heard it all before. Yeah. Just, they're
0: fine with it. James. The question is, is there any role or place within the church for something to be said with any semblance of certainty to draw a line to say, this we can be certain of? I mean, what, one of the one of those anchors I would imagine would be like the resurrection of Jesus, right?
1: Well, no, we can't be certain of that. Can we? But, now listen to me. I'm, I'm getting at your question from a different angle, right? It's not about personal certainty, right? But we can say there are beliefs that define our community that are important that we will adhere to. And I think every institution, every denomination does that, every church does that, every school with a religious affiliation does that. Mm. It's both inescapable and good, right? I think problems come when they become too detailed. Like, I mean, Eastern has a very nice, what I would call minimalist, mere Christianity statement. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is part of the Presbyterian world that I was politely asked to leave several years ago. Um, It's 33 chapters with footnotes. It's a book this thick. I think, see, the more you get into it, the more problems you can come up with. But, you know, I think there are certainly, yes, absolutely, there are things you say, okay, that's outside of the Christian faith, that's inside. But I think it's a little bit different question than things we are certain about. I'm certain this circumscribes our community, but that's a different kind of certainty that I'm talking about in the book. It's more when you yourself just aren't sure. Tr- I don't know that God exists. Hey, listen, don't leave the church. Stay here. <laughs> be a part of who we are and be a part of this. And, and and don't think that you're dishonoring your faith by asking a question like that. So in a way, right?
0: you mean, what I hear you
1: saying is like, he's kind of asking a different question. He's asking a different question. Right. Right. That, that's See, I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't go into church content and say, it doesn't matter what you believe, doubt everything. I'm saying, okay, what's your belief system? Okay, what do you do with people in your congregation who say, you know, like the Westminster Standard of Faith, God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. What happens if you get to a point where you say, I don't think God actually ordains everything that happens. What do you do with somebody in that context? And I've seen people say, you're, you're done bye. yeah that, see that is spiritually detrimental and unhealthy that 's a different thing and it 's when you when you don 't allow people room to live and, and to breathe who are doing it genuinely they 're not trying to cause trouble they 're actually afraid to tell anybody, but that 's where they are see and I think those are two different questions yeah
0: i think that, I think that 's hugely important question. because I yeah. feel like uh, mm-hmm. a little bit of what this group of people has attempted to do is to hold that space where the person who does have that certainty can sit in the same room with the person right. who does have that doubt. Right. I, know, I know I have, uh, Danielle and I have people in our church that actually do not believe many of the things that m- th- many of the other people in the room right. actually believe. Right. And we have to be able to create a space that they right. s- that, that doubt yeah. and that uncertainty, that questioning even of our core tenants can live here and we can somehow live right. together and work together and all right. of
1: that. And to believe that God can handle it. Right.
0: Right. So I think that's that for those of you who are a little, uh, um, uh, I guess, on edge that Pete just said, well, are we really (laughs) certain about the resurrection? I think if we're... uh, Because this would be something maybe where um, I would push a little bit on. um, But to know that that can live in this place, I think is more of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to misrepresent. No, not at all. I mean,
1: the thing is... People can say, I, "I truly and deeply believe in the resurrection of Jesus." Right. That's very different than saying, "I'm absolutely certain that Jesus rose from the dead," intellectually or something, because that comes and goes. That, that wavers. Right. You know, pe- people do. say,
0: Really. Like, if can you start I doing know? all the historical data, like. Or
1: just right. anything, just like I've never seen it. Right, it's not it's not part of my common experience. Right. I'm not I'm not saying doubt the resurrection. You hear what I'm saying, people? Okay, just just calm down. I'm just saying that there's there are different kinds of certainty and conviction. And you can believe something very deeply for which you can actually give no reason. That's okay.
0: Uh, if I can quote many of you know John Ortberg, who's over here at Menlo Park very close, in his book Faith and Doubt, he starts off the book by saying, you know, I'll be honest with you, there's a part of me, if I die and I go to heaven, and all this turns out to be a tr- true, there's a part of me that will be surprised. Yeah. And I really yeah, appreciated yeah. his kind of honesty in opening up mm-hmm. his book by saying, there is a part of me that would be surprised if all this right. was true. Any, right. Anybody else? Please. Yes, please.
1: Yeah, I'd like to have more of those. Um, I've had a few. One of them, I mean, um, it might take too long to talk about, but I, I do talk about in the book what has to do with my daughter, and she was suffering a lot with depression and anxiety, and just a moment of the weirdest thing happened that I knew what was happening at that moment. And you know, weeks and months go by and I could find other ways to explain it. But I, I made a decision not to do that, to, to not filter everything through an analytical process, but just to let the experience remain as it is and to accept it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've had I've had several like that where it's just, it, it, like, bypasses the normal channels of my life. It doesn't go, first, filter through here and then finally get out someplace else. It went right into here and it's just like immediate experience and you know i mean i've this has been said by several people and i've come across it um recently by a couple of different authors but um, the future of christianity in the west people are this bold to say is being in touch with the mystical side of the christian life which is something that simply it's not that it simply defies explanation, is that it doesn't even go there. It's not something filtered through our left brains, but it's something more that's right brain instead of left brain. And I've thought about that and I said, I think that's right because we've, we've, we've privileged the analytical side and that's done some great things in the West, but when you start thinking God can be circumscribed by our ability to analyze and to think logically, I think that's a problem, right? So I mean, I those God moments are. I think some people have them more often than people like me. <laughs> That's an occupational hazard, but you know you have them and, and you hold on to them. And I mean, I mean, it's a good question. It's obviously hitting, striking a chord with me. But um, I remember I was talking to a tr- in a church in San Francisco actually a few years ago about some of this stuff, and um, one person, a young young guy, maybe around twenty, early twenties. He said, um, what you're saying makes a lot of sense, but it's very unsettling to me for my faith. And I've had all these experiences of God. Are you telling me that they weren't real? And I said, oh, no, 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 (laughs) no. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying this is just another thing that we sort of add to the equation. And sometimes our experiences and what our thoughts later on might be, they don't always align. Okay, I I think I've had experiences of God when I was fairly young, in my teens and 20s. And I think differently about God today than I did 30 years ago. But that doesn't mean those experiences were ungenuine or inauthentic. I think they were encounters with God in an age-appropriate way. You know, the way I was back then, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think experiences are very important and, and we should be on the lookout for them. Those are our Ebenezers, you know, those are the those those rocks that we sort of hold out and we look we come back and look at those moments when we need to. So
0: yeah. Well in some ways your experiences are like when you say you have an ex- I love what you said in an age appropriate way, and as you grow older, it's not that your new experiences with God replace those. Right. Your experiences or the way in which you experience God just simply expands into new right. categories, right? New right. new ways, in, through the intellectual way or through a science way or through Having a child, right. or whatever. It gets
1: more complicated the older we get, right. but that's life too, right? right? Life is more complicated at forty than it was at twelve, yeah. right? And that's part of it. So,
0: would you please uh, thank Pete for coming? And um, thank you.